This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning, family. Our scripture this morning is Psalm 34, page 463 in the Pew Bible. Page 463, Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. 
and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Hey, good morning. How is it going, Redeemer? Casey, what are you laughing at? Hey, my name is Andrew. I am one of the pastors at our Johnson County congregation. So I am here about once a year, and it's really good to be here with you guys on this uh, Sunday morning here in the middle of July. I love, I love you guys. Um, I hardly ever get to be over here with you, um, but I just wanted you to know that we in Johnson County pray for you regularly. Uh, we're so thankful for all of you guys, the work that you do here in the city, the way that you um, love each other really well. Um, I just like could go on and on about the ways that I personally have benefited from the work that you guys give yourselves to week in and week out. So thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Um, I, I feel like anything after this, after worship and after hearing Psalm 34 read, it's just going to be a little bit of a disappointment. Um, but I have some things for you out of this passage that I think uh, have been encouraging to me, hopefully will be encouraging to you. So all I'm going to do is pray. Uh, we're going to ask God to keep doing the work that he already is doing here in this place right now, and then we'll go through Psalm 34 and get out of here. So will you all pray with me? Jesus, we love you. You're the only thing that we have to stand on. I'm looking out at this room full of people and knowing that we're all coming here with different um, burdens, with different emotions, with different expectations, with different wants and longings. There's joy in this room. There's grief in this room. Um, and there's every single thing in between that. Like, how do we hold, how do we hold all that together? Um, you're the only thing that can. So Jesus, um, we confess that you are good, that there has never been a time that you have not been good in our lives. Even in the moments where it feels like you're so far away and we don't know what's going on, you are still good and you are still working to accomplish good here in this place, here in this city. And, and Jesus, we need more of you. So God, will you increase our faith? Will you give us hope? Will you let a genuine love abound in this room? And all of these are things that we, we can talk about, we can point to, we can sing about. Um, but unless you come and move, uh, we can't do any of that on our own. So, Spirit of God, will you come? Will you fill our hearts? Will you help us to see Jesus? I pray all this in your name. Amen. Hey, people are driven to commemorate significant events. There's something inside of us that knows when something important, when something significant happens, we have to find some way to mark it. Just think a couple weeks ago, on the 4th of July, we commemorated our independence from Great Britain by eating a lot of unhealthy food and blowing things up, which seems really appropriate. How else do you commemorate independence? We, we have anniversaries 
anniversaries where on a day each year, we look back and say, hey, on this day, my life changed. And so we have to mark it. We look back at what happened. We remember how things shifted and we look forward to how do we live in light of this. And we do this everywhere, right? Drive across Kansas through vacation in Colorado and you'll see historical markers everywhere. Like on this day, you know, in this place, this thing happened and here's why you should remember it. Go to Arrowhead Stadium. There's a big banner in there that says Kansas City Chiefs, Super Bowl champions, 2019. If you want to remember uh, a little bit more distant glory, something that seems a little bit further away, you can go to Kauffman Stadium and see, oh yeah, seven years ago in 2015, we were actually good. Something good happened. I love the Royals. Like I'm not hating on them. It just hurts. So it makes me feel good to uh, make fun of them a little bit with you. There is something inside of us that has to mark events so that we can remember, hey, in this time, this thing happened. It really impacted me. It impacted us. It changed the way that we think about ourselves, and it changed the way that our future is going to look. And Psalm 34, the words that we just heard read, are a psalm of commemoration. It's David's Ebenezer, which we just sang about in Ebenezer here, I raise my Ebenezer in the Old Testament, and Ebenezer is a pile of rocks that people would stack up so that they could remember and look back on God's faithfulness. Hey, God moved. God showed up. He acted, and it's worth physically commemorating that event. And so Psalm 34 is David sitting down and writing out a commemoration to God in response to a significant event in his life where he thanks God, he blesses God, and he gives instruction to anyone who is listening, which includes you and me, on what it means to pursue a blessed life in the delivering presence of God. And when I say that phrase, uh, a blessed life, I'm sure that we all kind of have our um, ideas in our hearts and our guts and our minds about what a blessed life means. For, for a lot of us, I would assume it looks like having enough, having a happy family, a fulfilling vocation, relationships. And what's fascinating is that in this psalm, when David is giving us this instruction about blessing the Lord, rejoicing the Lord, learning how to pursue a blessed life, he's in a place where he's anything but fulfilled. He's living in exile, literally in a cave, in the desert, after a string of personal failures, loss, betrayal, and even sin in his own life. And so instead of pointing to anything circumstantial in his life or things that he has accomplished on his own, David says that the only way to find a blessed life, to find the good life, is to walk in faith and obedience before God because blessing comes from knowing him and experiencing his salvation. So that's, what, that's, that's all I want to talk about today. Um, if you close your Bibles, open them back up. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, take the hardback one in the pew in front of you. Um, we would love for you to take that on page 463. Before we get into the actual text, I want you to look right below um, the bold title in your Bible, and you'll see words are probably in a little bit of a different font, um, which says, Psalm 34, of David, 
when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. This is one of a few Psalms that we have in our Bibles that actually point back to a specific event, a specific time, a specific place. Others, we can kind of guess at what their context is and think like, maybe this was going on. Psalm 34 tells us exactly uh, where this Psalm comes from, which means that knowing the story is going to help us better understand what is going on in Psalm 34. So do me a favor, uh, favor and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21, it is on page 244 in my Bible, which means if you're using the black hardcover Bible in the pew, it's going to be on page 244 also. 1 Samuel uh, tells the story of David, his rise to uh, the kingdom, the kingship in, uh, in Israel. And in this time, in Psalm 21, at this point, David is in his mid-20s. He's 25, 26. And up until this point, his life has kind of been a fairy tale. He's a shepherd boy, plucked from obscurity, blessed by God, said, hey, you're going to be the king over all my people. And then he demonstrates that God is with him by going out and killing who? The giant Goliath. So I was at Johnson County a couple weeks ago, and I was uh, preaching about David, and I, we had the kids on the service. Um, so I was trying to be, you know, like engaging to the kids in there. I was like, kids, tell me something about Goliath, or about David. And someone yelled out, he killed someone who is almost as big as you. And I was like, jeez. <laughs> I was just like, I can't go out after that. Like, let's just Benedict and get out of here. So David kills this giant Goliath, saves the people in Israel, and is a national hero. People are singing songs about him. Everywhere that he goes, he's adored. He's in the king's court, risen from literally being a shepherd all on his own in the wilderness to being an important official in the kingdom of Israel. And it's amazing until it wasn't because King Saul sees that David is growing in popularity. He's growing in influence and he gets really worried and paranoid. He's like, well, man, it seems like people love David more than they love me, which means like my kingdom is probably at stake. So Saul turns, he flips, he starts trying to kill David. David is married to Saul's daughter at this point. So it's literally a family betrayal. And David finds himself after this rapid rise in the place where he is on the run. He is all alone and he's wondering, where do you go from here? So David Saul's trying to kill him, runs out of the kingdom, runs out of the court, and the first place he stops in 1 Samuel 21 is at Nob. Nob is the place where the tabernacle of God was set up. He shows up, and I, I want you to notice a few things. Um, David does not come off well in this chapter. He doesn't handle himself very well. He shows up in Nob, and in verse 1, Ahimelech the priest comes out to meet him, and he's trembling and says to him, hey, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David, in response to that, lies. He said, hey, I, I am on a top secret mission from King Saul. He sent me out. He said, don't let anyone know about the thing that you're doing. It's top secret. So just like get out, go as fast as you can and get out of here. He, he straight up lies to the priests to save his life. And David says, I'm in such a hurry. I didn't take any food. I don't have any weapons. Can you please help me out? So the priest 
gives him, he says, the only food that we have is the showbread, the, the bread that is devoted to God. You can have that if you want it. David says, that's amazing. Do you have any weapons? I don't have a sword. I left so quickly. I, I have nothing. And the priest says, sure, I have the sword of Goliath, the giant you killed. You can take that and use that if you want to. David says, hey, that's perfect. That's great. You're helping the kingdom out. I'm going to get out of here. Which, by the way, David's actions here actually ended up getting the priests who helped him killed a couple chapters later. So David, on the run, lies, betrays people, ends up harming the people who help him later on. And then, for some reason, 21 verse 10, decides that the place that he should run is to Gath. Now, if you've been in Sunday school, you know that Goliath, the giant, came from Gath. It's a place in uh, Philistine territory, in enemy territory. Maybe he thought, well, that's the last place Saul will look for me. I'm just going to go over there. So 21 verse 10, David rose, fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Psalm 34 calls him Abimelech. Abimelech was probably the title. It means my father is the king. Achish is his name. Um, and he goes there, and immediately people recognize him, and they say, hey, isn't that David, public enemy number one, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him and dance? As Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. And so David hears this, and he realizes, oh man, I've made another massive mistake. I thought I was going to be safe here. I thought I could pull it off. Turns out these people don't like me either. They want to kill me also. So the thing that he did to try to save his life is act out of his mind. 21 verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Which, by the way, that's as humiliating and abasing a thing that you could do to yourself in that day and age. He, it, the, a, a man's beard is kind of a sign of honor and status. So you don't do things to mess it up. And David just goes all the way and spits on his beard, lets everything uh, like, you know, look horrible, humiliating, debasing. He, he's literally the lowest that you can go at this point. And it kind of works. Verse 14, then Achish said to his servants, look, this man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Should this fellow come to my house? No, get him out of here. He's like, look, I've got enough problems of my own. Maybe this is David. Maybe it's not. Don't care. Just get him out of here. So chapter 22, David runs away from there and escapes to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone listened to this who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So David escapes against all odds. He's sitting there in this cave, and Psalm 34 is the response that David comes up with. It's his Ebenezer. It's his memorial to everything that had just happened. He's not sitting in the king's palace. He's sitting in a cave by himself, reflecting on his own failure, his own shame. And he's not exactly with like an inspiring group of friends either. It's, it's the outcasts of society. It's people who are broken. It's people who are bitter. And it's in that place that he writes Psalm 34 to bless and thank God and 
to teach all of those who are with him to have faith in God alone, look to him alone, and walk in his way. So turn back with that context in your mind to Psalm 34, page 463. And in Psalm 34, it's an acrostic poem. An acrostic is, um, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 verses in our psalm. Each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He wrote it, so it's a teaching device. He wrote it so that people could learn how to respond to God. And what's he teaching? I love how Tim Keller describes it. He is teaching us how to boast in the goodness of God, not when everything is great, but when everything goes wrong. When your best efforts fail, when your plans fall apart, and everything you thought you could trust in lets you down, David says that it is in that place that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. I was talking with someone uh, last week about this, um, uh, about this chapter, and he was kind of asking, like, man, I, I try so hard to do that, and it just, like, I just don't, it's not clicking. I don't, I, I don't, get, I don't get how to do that. So I don't have, and I don't think David has a how-to experience, how-to experience all these things that he's talking about. What he does, and what I want to do for you this morning, is just kind of lay out a few claims about who God is and why, if it's true that God is like that, he is worthy of praising, of blessing, and tasting and seeing that he is good. So I have three of them. The first one that we see in Psalm 34 about why we can taste and see that the Lord is good is that God delivers when we don't deserve it. God delivers when we don't deserve it. Look down with me again at Psalm 34, verse 1. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I want to think about just, just for a moment the fact that David says he's going to bless the Lord. Your version might say extol, but the Hebrew here is, is, is just, it's the word that's always used for blessing in the Old Testament, which you might say, that's just another way of saying praise. But the second half of verse one describes praise as something that happens that is distinct from blessing, which gives us insight into David's heart and soul at this time. He's just escaped death and he realizes that he had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with the fact that he is alive right now and actually in relative safety. Was it David's faithfulness or obedience or smarts that delivered him from Achish? No. It was the grace of God that was at work in everything that happened. God does not operate by the principles of karma. He doesn't come through because David did all the right things and deserved help. God does not operate by deserving. David is coming off of a long string of sins and failures, and yet, look at verse 4. I sought the Lord, and what? He answered me. 
and he delivered me from all of my fears. And so in response to that, looking back at what had happened, David returns to God the same blessing he received from God. And one commentator says that the way he does this is by vocalizing, verbalizing back to God who he is, what he has done, and then aligning his life and participating in the work that God is doing in the world. God loves it when we respond to him in thanksgiving and heartfelt praise. He is overjoyed. Because what's crazy is like God doesn't need anything from us. God didn't need David's blessing. God didn't need David's praise. God doesn't need our blessing or praise. He doesn't need anything for, like what can we give back to God? But the Psalms are full of calls to come and bless the Lord with me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, for his steadfast love endures forever. God is worthy of blessing because his love endures, he shows up, he delivers, even especially when we do not deserve it. Which shouldn't surprise us because it's the gospel of Jesus, right? The gospel of Jesus doesn't tell us that if we're good or if we are at our best or if we just think or believe the right things, then God will love us. The gospel is that God loves us when we are at our worst. The gospel is that God delivers and comes through for you when you are at your least deserving. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And friends, I, um, I get worried that I and we let the magnitude and weight of those words just get old or just grow, grow, grow numb to them. If this is true, if what the Bible has to say about who God is is true, then, then it means that in Christ you are chosen, accepted, loved, belong in God's family no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you have had done to you. The grace of God is always for you. And that is something that is worth holding on to. It's something that is worth coming back to over and over and over again. It's something that is worth calling our friends to rejoice in together, which is exactly what David does. Hey, let's magnify the Lord together. Let's praise him together. And, and he, he, do, you know, do you know who he's calling to do that? 400 riffraff in the middle of the desert who've lost everything, who have nothing to give. And he's saying, hey, right now, all of us here, we can know the grace of God together. We can taste and see that the Lord is good, which I would not be inclined to go there immediately if I were in David's shoes. If I were in the middle of the desert after having lost everything, and a lot of it was my fault, I would be like, 
all right, I missed the plan. Like, something went wrong. God, where are you? God, what is going on? But that is not what David does. David realizes that God delivers when we don't deserve it, and that no matter where we find ourselves, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, it is well to mark our mercies with well-carved memorials. God delivers when we don't deserve it. The second claim that David is going to lay out before us about who God is, why we can boast in his goodness, is that God provides when we are helpless. God provides when we're helpless. Look down with, at verse 8 with me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man, the woman, who takes refuge in him. One of my favorite things about the Bible is how often it invites us to test its claims, uh, to test what it's saying. It's saying, hey, I'm not just expecting you to believe that the Lord is good. It's not some abstract proof, like in two plus two equals four. He's, He's inviting, hey, come and try this. Come taste, come see. Come for yourself to see whether or not what I am saying about who God is is true. Don't just treat the goodness of God like some mathematical proof in your mind. Come, taste it, see it, experience it, ingest it, get it into the very core of who you are. And the Bible, this psalm, is going to invite us to do that through faith. Because, again, our definition of goodness, which this psalm is all about goodness, it's all about the goodness of God, does not overlap um, with what we think about as true goodness most of the time, right? Um, Because God's goodness is not primarily found on vacation, on the beach, in a fulfilling career, in a full bank account. All those things can be good gifts, signs of God's grace and provision with us, Um, but that's not what the Bible is going to talk about or point to when it talks about the goodness of God, because all of verse 8 goes together. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and where do you do that? Where is that found, second half of verse 8, by taking refuge in him? You taste and see that the Lord is good when you take refuge in him, which means that when you are in need of refuge, when you have nothing to give, because that's what it means to be in need of refuge, right? You actually need something. You need protection. You need help. You need safety. That is the ideal spot to experience the goodness and the blessing of God. Look at the way that verses 9 and 10 talk about provision from God. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lions uh, were the most powerful predators in David's day. They're the top of the food chain. They are in control all the time. But David says, 
Young lions, full of strength, full of vigor, will suffer want and hunger before God fails to provide for anyone who takes refuge in him. Apex predators are going to suffer want and hunger before those who fear the Lord lack any good thing. But again, we have to ask, hey, what does that actually mean? Because I'm looking out at a room full of people, which I don't know a lot of you guys as well as I know people uh, in Johnson County at our congregation, but I know I'm looking at a room full of people who love and seek the Lord really faithfully, who earnestly, honestly, authentically desire to have more of him in your life. And I could guess that every single one of you could look at something and say like, I feel like I'm lacking plenty of good things in my life right now. Because we live in a world that is broken. We have relationships that are really difficult. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be. So what does it mean when David can say, hey, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing? And the only solution that I can see is that God's goodness is not defined by or limited to our circumstances or what we're facing. Our opinion of God's goodness rises and falls on how things are going for us. If things are uh, going well, if we are happy, if we have what we need, then God is good all the time and all the time that God, God is good. But if we don't, if things are going poorly or things are falling apart, then God, where are you? Did I do something wrong? Um, are, you, are you even there? Do you even care? And again, what I love about the Bible is that you can find plenty of psalms that actually sound exactly like that. Lament is good. Grief is good. We need to do both of those things. But what this psalm is inviting us to is instead of interpreting God's goodness through the lens of our circumstances, God is inviting us to interpret our circumstances through the lens of his goodness. Do you get the difference there? How does this work out? I heard the story uh, a couple weeks ago of a missionary named Alan Gardner, who uh, was a missionary to Patagonia in South America in the 1850s. He dreamed kind of all of his life of going across the ocean, leaving England and spreading the gospel, starting churches, um, seeing people come to know Jesus. And so he and a few of his friends uh, sail across the ocean, go get dropped off in this really un- inhospitable land, uh, and then a ship leaves. And within, within a couple weeks, they kind of realized that they had underestimated the difficulty of the situation that they were putting themselves into. Um, the landscape was really harsh. The supplies that they had weren't adequate. Um, and they ran out of food way faster than they expected. And the supply ship did not end up coming back. And so during this time, Alan Gardner and his friends kept journals, um, kind of keeping track of what they were doing, um, expressing a lot of prayers that they had. And eventually, Alan, along with all of his friends, ended up starving to death. And a supply ship came three weeks later, found them. And what was amazing is that as they were reading through their journals, as it became apparent that like they probably weren't going to make it out of it, Alan Gardner went to Psalm 34. And instead of cursing God and saying, God, where are you? All my plans have failed. I thought that you were in this. 
he quotes Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then he says, after that, I am overwhelmed by a sense of the goodness and the nearness of God. And so think about that. He's in a situation where he knows he's not going to go back and see his family again. He's not going to get to do the thing that he thought and was convinced that God had called him to do. And yet, he had seen, he had tasted, he knew that even if I lose everything, I'm not going to lose the goodness of God. I'm not going to lose, even if I lose my life, I'm not going to lose God himself. Do you you see how different that is from the ways that we normally navigate the world? Like we get so consumed with and overwhelmed by all of the things that we have going on in our lives and we can lose sight of the fact that no, the base level, foundational fact, if you are in Christ, is that God is good always and he will never not be good, which means that there is redemption, there is hope, on the other side of whatever it is that you're facing right now. And it also means that there is a different way of living in the world that we find ourselves in right now, which is what the middle part of the psalm is all about. Come, O children, verse 11, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may say good, see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, which David is probably preaching to himself right now. He has not done these things, Right? His lips have been plenty full of deceit uh, just recently. Turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. If you want to learn the fear of the Lord, get close to someone who knows God. Get close to someone who fears him. Learn to see God the way that they see him. Go, Go after them. Throw yourself on the goodness and the mercy of God. So David, again, on a string of failure, all alone, had nothing to offer, says, I can taste and see that you are good because you've delivered me when I didn't deserve it. You've provided for me when I'm helpless. And then finally, the last third of the psalm, he gives us another claim about who God is. He said, God is near to us when we are broken. God is near when we're broken. Look down at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I had a weird kind of experience um, studying for this sermon, going through this text, um, Kara, my wife, uh, her family's from Chicago. We met up there while I lived there. Uh, we go back there, you know, pretty frequently to try to visit uh, her family. So we were there uh, in her dad's house in Deerfield, which is the north suburb of Chicago, on the 4th of July, uh, which is just three miles away from Highland Park, which you might have seen in the news. There was a mass shooting during a 4th of July parade um, in Highland Park. It was one of the most bizarre like, experiences of my life. Like, I've, I've spent, I mean, so much time 
in Highland Park. Um, I've eaten at restaurants there. I know people there. We're three miles away when the shooting is happening. And so I'm reading Psalm 34, talking about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, blessing the Lord, praising him at all times while I'm listening to sirens and like seeing images of restaurants that I've been in with shot out windows. And, and, and I was really wrestling and struggling with, hey, God, how, like, what does it mean to taste and see that you're good in this world? Because we don't live in an idealized fairy tale, everything is okay, happy, clappy all the time world. We live in a world where sometimes the worst thing does happen. We live in a world where sometimes relationships and families fall apart. We live in a world where shootings happen, where things that we thought that we could count on, suddenly we realize, oh, I can't count on that thing anymore. And all I have to say, all, all I could come to grips with, all I could pray to God is like, hey, God, this, this has to be real for this world. Because if your grace isn't sufficient, if your grace isn't good for the world that we're living in, like, I, how do you make it through? How do you make it through with everything that we're facing? In, in Psalm 34, David, God, your father, knows all of that. He knows your heart. He knows your struggles. He knows your doubts. He knows your grief. And what Psalm 34 wants to leave you with is that in all of that, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So if you feel in some particular way today or if you felt this way for a long time, the brokenness and grief of this world, Psalm 34 has promises for you. It has claims to lay before you about where God is in the middle of that. It says, God sees. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. God hears his ears towards their cry. God is against evil and all those who commit evil. And one day, evil will fall back on itself so it will not even be a memory in the world anymore. God hears your cries. He is coming for you. He is near. And what that doesn't mean, what Psalm 34 is not saying is that once you start following Jesus and everything is just going to be magically okay because, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalm 34, the Bible, Christianity assumes that things probably will get worse before they get better. That there are times when your circumstances will not improve. So why bother? And Psalm 34, David says to you, because God is there with you in it. Why keep going? Because God loves you. He is coming for you. He will deliver you ultimately from every single sorrow. And in Christ, there is nothing that can crush you. That's what, that, that, that's what verse 20 is about. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. All the pressure that's heaped upon you, all the things that feel like they're going to break you down, God says, I'm with you in that, and I will deliver you. 
And as we pick up wounds and scars in this life, we remember, as Charles Spurgeon says, that heaven heals all wounds. So maybe there are things that don't get healed in this life, but heaven heals all wounds, which means that right now, you can not just trust in God's goodness, but you can actually rejoice in it. That's what Psalm 34 is calling us to do. It's calling us to rejoicing. I listened to an interview uh, with a pastor named Charlie Dates recently. He's a pastor at a historic African-American church uh, in Chicago. And the interview was asking her, uh, him, hey, what is it that is distinct about um, the black church and the ways that they worship? And he said, when we come together, we view everything that we do as a corporate act of celebration, So we come together and we worship. Why? To celebrate God's goodness. We preach. Why? To celebrate God's goodness and pursue a defiant joy. Because, like, I don't know, I don't don't know, but like the the history of the African-American church in this country is not one that circumstantially leads itself to joy and rejoicing, right? There has been a lot of opposition. There has been a lot of pain. And yet we can come together Charlie Dates says, and celebrate in the goodness of God that is always for us, that is always with us. And I don't know about you, but I'm really bad at joy. Like, I'm okay at um, seriousness and feeling things and uh, being sad. Joy is a lot harder for me. And what I really want to do, what I want to do with you guys in this place is pursue a defiant kind of joy that no matter what it is we have in front of us, No matter what it is we're facing, no matter what it is you're facing, if the promises of God are true, then we can actually rejoice. We can actually have a joy that transcends sorrow, that goes against things that we have coming in our face right now, and know, hey, if God is the kind of God who sends himself to enter into the pain, brokenness, and suffering of the world— because that's what he did in Christ, right? In Christ, Hebrews says, he, for the joy who was set before him, endured the cross. So Jesus, God incarnate, comes down out of heaven, embraces suffering, embraces evil, embraces loss, embraces betrayal, embraces your sin, takes it on himself, and puts an end to it forever. And then three days later, God raises him from the dead, vindicates him, and says, hey, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess before this crucified and risen Jesus. And if you are in him, then that's your future also. If resurrection was on the other side of the cross for Jesus, that means there's resurrection in your future also. Which means that like, there's hope in whatever it is you're facing. Which means that sadness, tears, pain don't actually have the final word. Which means that today, right here, you can actually take a step towards tasting and seeing that the Lord is good because his steadfast love endures forever. He delivers us when we don't deserve it. He provides when we're helpless. And he is near to us when we are brokenhearted. And the way 
that we taste and see that the Lord is good. One of the ways that we do that every single week is by taking communion. It's literally an opportunity for us to apply this sermon right now. You can come towards the front. You can break off a piece of the bread and remember, oh, Jesus' body was broken for me. You can taste the wine. You can taste the juice and say, Jesus' blood was poured out for me. He loved me even to the point of death, even to the point of shedding his own blood on my behalf. So friends, don't just hear about the good news of the gospel. Come, taste it. Taste, see that the Lord is good. And all those who take refuge in him won't be cast out. They will not be condemned. So if you're a Christian, the way we do communion here as a Redeemer is communion is for you. We want you to come celebrate the Lord's Supper at his table. Look forward to the time when he will come make all things new, put an end to sin, suffering, sorrow, evil forever. And until then, we gather, we wait, we follow in his ways, we trust him. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. Um, don't, don't, take this, don't take this meal. Um, we would much rather have you pray, wrestle with who God is, wrestle with what he has to say. We actually are going to have people uh, here who would love to pray for you. Um, and if, you're, if you are a Christian who's in need of prayer, don't leave without getting prayer. Have one of our prayer ministers pray for you. Have one of your friends who came with you pray for you. That's just what we do. Um, that's part of being a Christian is we pray for each other. We bear each, each other's burdens. Um, in a minute, I'm going to pray. I'm going to finish giving instructions if I can remember how to do it here. Um, short answer is just follow everyone in line and you'll eventually make it to the right spot. The longer answer is we're going to have stations in the middle and you can come forward, tear off a piece of bread. We have wine in the stoneware, uh, juice in the glass. We have a gluten-free station right down here uh, if you prefer gluten-free. Use this time to taste and see that the Lord is good. Use this time to pray. Use this time to worship. I'm going to pray and then let's uh, do that. God, thank you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here in this room. Thank you for all the ways that you always have been faithful. And I know even as I'm saying these words, um, they can be really hard to believe, to embrace. So, Spirit of God, will you increase our faith? Will you increase our hope? Even if it's a like defiant baby hope, um, will, will, you, will you increase our hope? Will you give us joy? A joy that is defiant and transcends whatever it is that we have going on uh, because you're good. And there's never been a time that you have not been good and you will always be good. So Jesus, will you come? Spirit, will you come? Father, will you come and make all things new uh, because we need you? pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Come to the table when you're ready.